So the last few weeks we've been studying in the letter to the Colossians. Um, great study, I think. The, we talked about the church at Colossae was a, a good church. Paul is writing to them, probably did not know these folks. It was probably established by Epaphras, who was telling Paul about the congregation, reporting to him about their great love, their great steadfastness in the faith, and their willingness to serve. And uh, he is writing to them. And of course, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about their great faith their, and his prayer for them that they would continue in that faith, continue to show that love to others, and to continue to be fruitful because of that love they had for the Lord. Today, we're going to look at a passage where Paul begins to talk about their reason, the reason for their faith, the, the reason for our faith. And we can apply it to our lives today so, so well, and he's so eloquent when he talks about it. We're going to talk about the preeminent Christ, the preeminent, preeminent Savior, the Lord of our lives. When Paul first met Jesus, remember, he was on the road to Damascus, right? And the great light shining in his face, and he was blinded. And Jesus spoke to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, what? What did he say in Acts, Acts, Acts 9? Who are you, Lord? He didn't know who he was. He knew about Jesus. He had persecuted him, right? Persecuted his followers. So he knew a little about him but he didn't know him personally like the other apostles had. He said, who are you, Lord? But now we've come to this epistle to the Colossians, and we're going to learn a lot about Paul's growth, about his spiritual maturity in Christ, about his knowledge of who Christ is and how he is the preeminent king, preeminent savior, preeminent Lord. We're going to look at a passage from Colossians. So you can be turning your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look, and, and, and I want you to see what he says about the preeminent Christ and the fact that Christ is certainly our all-sufficient and preeminent Savior. Turn to Colossians 1, let's begin in verse 13. <clears throat> he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of... Notice this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. All right, that's a, that's a, a, lot, a lot of words, right, in, in a small passage there, talking about the Christ. A lot of things said about him that Paul is saying, all these things, and we're going to look at it a little deeper, trying to understand that, you know, you might say, well, well, I know this stuff, you know, I, I've, I've known this my whole life. Well, you might not have considered some of these things as deeply as perhaps Paul wants the church in Colossae to do. For instance, verse 13, he is the king over his kingdom. Turn over to John chapter 8, and we're going to look at a few verses from that. I'm sorry, John chapter 18. We're going to look for a few verses there. <clears throat> John chapter 18, and you might put a, a holder in the book of John because we're going to be referring to a few passages there. John chapter 18, and let's begin in verse uh, 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Jesus is a king. He proclaims it himself right there in John, right in that passage. We, we read about his proclaiming to Pilate that he was a king. But not the king like Pilate's thinking about. Not the king like the Jews were expecting on earth. He says, my kingdom's not of this world, right? He is the king over the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that he referred to over and over and over during his ministry. Remember that? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, this parable is like the kingdom. This teaches us what the kingdom is all about. He is a king, and he's reigning in his kingdom now. <clears throat> he is a king over all. His kingship is proclaimed in Revelation. Let's turn over to Revelation and read a few verses there. Chapter 1. What does it say about his kingship? And this is important because we've talked about many who believe in a, uh, you know, premillennialism, the, the, the thousand-year reign when Christ returns and all this stuff and how the kingdom has not been set up yet, the kingdom is to come and all these things. But I want you to pay attention to that because this kind of helps us understand that the kingdom has, is here. The kingdom is in, in right now. Beginning of verse 1, let's read, uh, beginning, I mean, I'm sorry, beginning of chapter 1, let's read, uh, beginning in verse uh, 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, I just mentioned... Uh, Paul just said he's the firstborn of the dead in that, one in that passage we read. John's restating that. And he's saying he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, if his kingdom has not been established yet, how, is that, how can that be, right? Read on. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and everyone will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here we see that Jesus is the king over all kings of the earth. He is in his kingdom. He came to the world to proclaim truth, and he's ruling in his kingdom. He's ruling the kings of the earth. He's made us as his disciples, as priests, and those in Christ, as we read there, are going to be part of his kingdom. We're going to be ruling, in a sense, 
in his kingdom. Turn over to chapter 2 there in Revelation. Let's read a few more verses. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you, will, what you have till I come. And he, will overcomes, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over all the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who perceive to the end will rule with him. You see that? We're going to be right there with him. And you think about that, we don't, it's not like we're going to be, I don't know, kings or God or anything, but our righteousness will prevail so well that we're going to judge the world because of our righteousness, right? Because of our being with God. He will also know, and you can turn over to chapter 17 there, and uh, if you've ever, if you've ever seen the, heard the Hallelujah Chorus, you know this tar- these phrases. You usually hear that around Christmas time, but 17, and let's begin in verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. He is truly the king of kings. He is true to the Lord of lords. He is king over his kingdom, king over all the kings of the earth. Can we say any more about his kingdom? His kingdom's here, and he's ruling in it. He's reigning in his kingdom, sitting at the right hand of God. What else does this passage say? He is the savior from our sins. Verse 14, by virtue of his blood, we have redemption. The word redemption simply means a releasing affected by a payment of a ransom. That's one, one way to say it, I guess. He has paid for our sins through the shedding of his blood. We're released from that bondage of sin through the payment of Jesus that was shed on the cross through his blood. We, we know this, right? We know that that's happened. But do you ever meditate on it? Do you ever try to understand that for sure? What he did? He gave his life for us. You know, that's awesome. (laughs) It's hard to find words, really. And it should be hard to find words. How can this be? How can God come and deliver his son for us? That's the greatest love there is, right? We, We can't fathom that. We can't understand that as humans in the flesh. We're told it. We can believe it. We can trust in it, but man, that's hard to understand, isn't it? He's redeemed us through the shedding of his blood. By virtue of his blood, we have forgiveness. Forgiveness, we have been released from that bondage of sin. And we can understand that, right? Sin can be a bondage, can't it? We all struggle with something, right? We have temptation every day. Some kind of sin we struggle with, right? He's released us from that bondage. He's continually cleansing us. We're constantly walking in that light, becoming more like him every day, released from those sins by what he did. In Christ, we have that forgiveness of sins. We have a king who's able to forgive us of those sins. You know, I say in the old old days, when, you know, we don't, I don't, I guess we have some kings around still. I don't know. 
Most of them are just figureheads now. But in the old days, a king could forgive you of your debts, right? A king could for, to pardon you from a, being, per, being uh, executed or whatever. But they really couldn't forgive your sins like God could, right? He's a king over all kings, over all heaven and earth. Verse 15 is interesting. I want you to pay attention to this a little bit. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. That's always an interesting phrase to me because, I, to me, I can see God in his creation, right? I don't see him physically face-to-face, of course. Physically, of course, he's spirit. He's not flesh. But he's saying in him, he is the image. He, came, he became flesh that we could see who God was. We know this from John. Turn back to John, and let's read it. And this is an important passage. We've studied this before. But I'm going to begin in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. That's what Paul is saying. He was the creator of all things. Turn down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received a grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Wow. We know God through Jesus Christ. He came, He shed His blood for us, but that's how we know who God is through Jesus Christ. He's been revealed through the flesh. Go over John chapter 14. We had a study on this when we were studying the gospel a few, uh, a few months ago. 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, you want to know the Father? Know me. Simple as that. And by the way, there's no other way to know the Father but through Him. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius. Who? Mary. Mary, yeah. There's no other way to know Him. He is the image of of the invisible God. Good point. I hadn't thought about Mary, but you're right. (laughs) Jesus is the image of God who was invisible. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, the Hebrew writer says we've seen the brightness of God's glory through him. We we can see the image of of him through his person, his personification of God. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, Jesus is the image of God. In the face of Jesus Christ is the knowledge of the glory of God. Of God. We can see his glory through Jesus Christ. Talked about last week, what, what is our purpose in life as Christians? 
glorify God. And all that we do as Christians, when we sacrifice, when we're, when we're serving others, when we're preaching the gospel, our fruit, the things that become of that, glorify the Father. I mean, think about, right? The world thinks we're idiots. The world looks at us like, you, why do you believe in a God you can't even see? But when we do the will of the Father, He is glorified, even in front of those who don't believe, right? Even in front of a world that's dying. Next description is going to be a little bit confusing when we look at it. It's not confusing if you just kind of read over it, but we're going to look at it a little deeper. Let's read it. Back in verse 15, I'm going to read it again. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Now, think about that for a minute. The firstborn means what? Well, it can mean the first one born, right? Your first child. And in the Old Testament, especially among Israel and, and I guess around all society at that time, the firstborn had special rights, right? We know about Jacob and Esau. Jacob bought his birthright from Esau because Esau was tired. He'd been out there hunting in the field, in the woods, wherever, right? That was a big thing. The birthright for the firstborn was a big thing. It meant you were the heir. You got all the privileges. You inherited the wealth or whatever. It's a big thing. He's saying Jesus was the firstborn. Yet, there's some, did you know this? There's some that have concluded by that very passage that Jesus was born of God. He was created by God. Did you know that? There is a cult out there called Jehovah's Witness. I know you're all familiar with that one because they've probably knocked on your door, right? And they'll tell you that Jesus was created by God. He's not on the same level as God. He is a created being. And they have a translation of the Bible, right, called the New World Translation. And I had it here, and I'm going <laughs> to, I lost it, I want to read it to you. But then in Colossians right here, let's see if I can get back to it real quick. Colossians 1, this is how they translate those verses I just read. And look at this, listen to this. This is the New World Translation from Jehovah's Witness. It says, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth. These, the things visible and things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Now, what, does your passage have other in there? Did any of your translations have other? No. We just read in John 1, he was there at the beginning. All things were created through him. Job's Witness will tell you, God created Jesus, and then all other things were created through him. A little different. So the next time Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, invite them in and open up to Colossians 1 and ask them about Jesus being God and see what they say. You have perfect translation right there to show them. Perfect example, defense. You might change somebody's mind there. Probably not, but you never know. Interesting, though, how people can misconstrue one passage and take that to mean something else. Firstborn of creation simply means he is the ultimate, he's the firstborn of all the people in the flesh, all those of God, right? He was not created by God, he was God, he is God. This phrase can be used in other places, I'm not going to turn to him in Exodus 4, it's used by God in his, in his reference to the nation of Israel. They were the firstborn of God, they were his people, they had that birthright because he chose them. Psalm 89, he talks about David. 
David being the firstborn of the kings. Was David the firstborn in his family? No. You remember the story how he was anointed, right? He was like the youngest of eight, I think, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. Was it, I think it was Samuel, right? Came to anoint the new king. Went through all the brothers. God didn't want any of them. And then he found, oh, David's out in the field minding the sheep. He didn't even come in. But God said he was the firstborn of the kings. Interesting how that phrase is used. Yes, ma'am. All right, he wasn't even first king. That's true. That's very true. Jesus says he wasn't even first king, and that's right. Saul was first king. Yet David was the firstborn of the kings. Any interpretation of this might, must be, well, it has to be in harmony, right? Of course, with John 1, that's why I read John 1. I wanted you to be reminded about that. Jesus is clearly proclaimed to be creator of all things. It could not be said, could it, that he was creator of all things if he was created, right? Makes sense? Yeah, of course that makes sense. It goes without saying. <sighs> that's why Jehovah's Witness would tell you, had to change their translation of Scripture to make that different. Purpose of the phrase, firstborn of all creation, states that Jesus was preeminent over all creation, the preeminent Christ. He has the rights of the firstborn, declared firstborn of all creation. Verse 16 and 17, we just said that he's the creator of all things. If he's the creator of all things, he has to be God, right? We just read that in John 1. If he's the creator of all things, he is the agent in which everything came into being. That means us, that means the world, that means the universe. And as creator of all things, it follows that he existed before everything was created. <coughs> that seems to be the idea there in verse 17, too, when he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's another interesting passage, right? All things consist. Sustainer of all things. In him all things consist. What does this mean exactly? Well, think about that for a minute. <clears throat> if he created the universe, he created us, he created, uh, you, you can see the design, there's order there, right? Um, everything consists in him. What if all of a sudden his, he just took his power away? What if all of a sudden the creator of the universe decided, I'm not going to be the king anymore. I'm not going to be the creator. What would happen? Well, I, I can't say for sure, but most likely everything would go to nothing. The universe would probably go completely out of whack, I would think. Uh, I don't know, maybe the earth would quit rotating around the sun and we all die of uh, freezing to death, I guess. I don't know. Things are kept in order by him being God. All things in him he consi are consistent by him. In other words, he keeps things running, right? He's the superintendent, you might say. He's the guy that keeps everything going. All things in him consist. Sustainer of all things, every created thing would fall into disorder if not for him being the sustainer. He's also, in verse 18, we read, the head of the body, the church. We know this, right? The church is the body. The body is whom? Us, right? We are the church. It's not the building. It's not some group that meets in the Elks Lodge. It's the people. 
We are the universal church, speaking in that sense. Everyone who is a believer, who's been added to the church, is part of that universal church. And you can also refer to the church as a local congregation, as we are. We are part of that universal, worldwide group of believers, the church. Local congregation uh, would be us. In this context, Paul's speaking of the church universal, of course. And as head of the church, Jesus is over that church. He has all authority in heaven and in earth. He's the one who controls the destiny of those in the church, right? What is the destiny of those in the church? Well, we want to be with him in eternity, right? We've talked about that many times. We are basically in eternity now on earth, in the flesh. We are living a life, as John said, abundantly. By our faith, we can live an abundant life while here on earth, a life full of joy and hope. Doesn't mean you're gonna, gonna, not going to suffer, but it means you can have that joy that passes all understanding, right? And then we have that hope of eternity, being with him in heaven. He's the head of the church. He will be delivering that church over to the Father at judgment. Those who are going on to their reward will be rewarded. Those who believe. Have some that have already gone to sleep in the Lord. They've gone on to be with the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. We have that hope because Jesus is the head of the church. And then in verse 8, the past part of 18, he talks about the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Interesting passage, right? Of course, the word beginning meaning... Uh, you know, a commencement uh, from the Greek word arche, or, or you know, there's there's many meanings you could have of it. Origin, be, you know, commencement. Uh, you think of beginning, someone graduating from school, and they're beginning their life, right? They're commencing. You go to a commencement, and you leave there, and you start your life, right? That's kind of the way that word is looking at. And he is firstborn from the dead. What does that mean exactly? Well, we just talked about being firstborn, right? He's the firstborn of creation. He's also the firstborn of the dead. That's an interesting passage. It could be misconstrued, perhaps. But we talked about firstborns, not the firstborn of a, or being a created being, but the preeminent being, the preeminent God, the preeminent Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians, and let's read a passage from 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Beginning in verse... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his order. Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Though when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all the things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. He's been made the firstborn of the dead. Okay, we read from this passage that Jesus is raised again, firstborn of those who are to be raised again. Okay, interesting pa 
thing, though. We, we, we have other folks in, in Scripture that were raised from the dead, right? We read about them. Lazarus, absolutely. The widow of Nain, right? And uh, the son of the, I'm saying the son of the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter, right? We have several examples. But they all died again, right? They didn't live forever. When Jesus was raised, he didn't die again. That was the kicker, right? Remember, we've talked about that many times. When Jesus died, what happened to the disciples? They lost their minds. <laughs> Peter denied him in front of other people right there in front of him. They didn't know what to think. This is the guy that they thought was going to change everything, be a king, had all the answers, and now he's dead. Just another guy that died. But then he was raised from the dead, and everything changed at that point. Never to die again. He's the firstborn of those raised from the dead. We will all be raised from the dead to eternity with him because of what Jesus did. Because he is the firstborn of the resurrection. Yes, we have other examples of those being raised by God from the dead, but they died again. Not Jesus. Term first fruits suggests he was the cream of the crop. Cream of the crop. In other words, he was the first one to be resurrected for eternity that we might have that hope in him. He's the active cause of resurrection, and Christ all are made to be alive by his own resurrection, never to die again. He is the firstborn from the dead. Makes sense, right? He's the preeminent one. Everything he's done is to lead us to eternity. In our verse 19, he says he's the fullness of all things. Jesus is clearly the fullness of deity, right? He's the king. He is the image of the invisible God, clearly, right? Paul later declares that Jesus and Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Turn over to Colossians 2 there, and let's read that passage real quick. Colossians 2, and let's begin in verse 8. Be, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul's reiterating there that we are complete in him. We, he is the king. He is the king of all kings, over all kings, over all principalities, over all power. In him, we have that redemption. We have that forgiveness of sin. We have all the treasures of his wisdom and his knowledge, his revelation. In other words, we're complete in him we're made perfect in him can't do it ourselves right can't save ourselves we're doomed to eternal punishment without him have no hope but through him we can be made complete and think about that a minute yes sir That's right, Brother Bobby. He says we've got to study. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to know His Word to know who He is. That's true. 
He is the image of God, and that's how we come complete in him. <clears throat> We're all born with a certain, I don't know, hole in us, right? Right? Some longing for what is the purpose? Why are we here, right? I mean, unless you just stay you know, busy 24-7 and you don't, don't think about it, at some point you've got to kind of wonder, what's it all about? Right? I think that's a song, right? What's it all about, Alfie or something? But that's, that, that's something that's in us, right? We're born with that longing, yearning for something greater than us. Because it has to be. How did all this happen, right? This is revealed to us through him who is the image of God, and that fills that hole that we have. That yearning, that longing to know what's it all about. You know, we work our whole lives. You know, what's the old song? Work my fingers to the bone. What do you get? Bony fingers, right? What's the point? To serve, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as much as yourself. That's it. Through that, God is glorified. That's your purpose right there. You are complete in him. You're going to have the joy that passes all understanding, abundant life because of that. And then finally in verse 20 he says, He is the reconciler of all things. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's read a passage from that. Corinthians chapter 5. And let's begin in verse uh, 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Father's desire is to reconcile us to himself. He has such great love that he wants us to be reconciled to him. By being reconciled to him, what happens to us? We're saved. We get salvation we get to spend eternity with God. And I don't want to spend eternity without God. That's a scary thought right there. To me, anyway. Not necessarily to the world. But I'm a sinful man. I am so thankful that God has decided to do this. He includes everyone, Jews and Gentiles, all people. He also says... He's reconciling things in heaven and in, in earth and in heaven. That's a little bit perhaps a difficult phrase. I mean, you could, you could extrapolate that out and say, well, what's got to be reconciled in heaven? But whatever he means by that, he is simply the reconciler of all things. Paul's making that statement. He's able to do it. He's able to reconcile all things to himself. He's made that peace through the blood of, 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 Jesus, of Jesus on the cross. The death of the Son is now possible for sinful man to be reconciled to God. That's an amazing thing. And I, I, know, I know we say, well, okay, I understand that. You know, that's great. And I, I pray to God I'm thankful for him every day. 
I give my thanks to him. But the world doesn't understand that, right? And I want us to constantly remember that. We serve a wonderful, loving God. So loving that he gave his only son to, to reconcile us to him. He wants us to be with him. He wants us there. We were created to glorify him. That's an awesome thought, right? A God who created the universe wants us to be with him. Well, it's an interesting passage that Paul has here to the church at Colossae. He's come a long way, as we said, right? First he says, who are you, Lord? When he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. But now he's proclaiming that uh, Jesus is the king over his kingdom. He's the savior of our sin. He's the very image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, head of the church. For, uh, be, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the fullness of all things, and he is the reconciler of all things to God. Remember, anytime you read these passages, you have to look at other passages too, the context and other passages to make sure you understand what they're saying. Paul is simply saying what John already said, what the other apostles have said, Peter said. Jesus is God. He's part of the Godhead. He came in the flesh to show us who God was bodily. Image of the invisible God. That's how we know. You don't need anybody else. Just him. That's it. Someone says, I'm going to heaven one day. I said, yeah, but are you a Christian? Well, no, but I believe as long as I do good things, I'm a good guy, I don't hurt anybody, I'm going to heaven. Tell them to go to John. Tell them to go to Colossians 1. Read it to them. Sorry, but everybody sinned. And just because you're a good person don't mean you're going to see God. I know that sounds tough. Maybe that sounds not so nice. But it's the truth. Jesus said, I came to bear witness of the truth. The world, in the world, you will be told things that are not true. It happens every day. Just turn on TV. Jesus is the truth. Enough said, right? By the way, if you haven't given your life over to him, today's as good as day as any. Might as well do it. Now I'm preaching. Time to shut up. Thanks for being here.